welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Simon, how are you today? Good, yeah. Uh, we've been talking about doing this for a while, so it's great to finally do it. <laughs> I know we have. I'm so glad that we were able to finally connect. Um, and I also want to thank you for uh, for re- reviewing my book as well. That was a very nice uh, bonus thing that happened, um, even in spite of this pandemic. Look, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, the world keeps moving, so I think we, we can talk about it. But uh, yeah. Actually, in some ways, doing this now means that we did get to read the book as well. So I think it worked out okay. That's true. That's great. So where are you calling from right now? Yeah, so I guess like like most of us, unless we were really unfortunate, uh, we are Mm -hmm. home-based. But we have, to some degree, been working remotely for a while now. And with Irish Tech News, a a lot of our team are distributed both across Ireland and globally as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, in some ways, some things are much the same and in other ways, things are very different. But uh, I'm doing this at home. I guess the only different thing would be normally the kids would be in school. So we've yeah. had to soundproof the room a little bit, you know. For <laughs> sure. OK, good, good. So for my listeners who are who are less familiar with your your background and what you do, how do you describe yourself? Um, yeah, look, I guess I guess big picture. Uh, so we have Irish Tech News and, mm-hmm. and that's that's it's quite nice in that we have an interesting breakdown of our audience where 50 percent of our audience is repeat traffic and 50 percent has come in for the particular thing that we've covered. Mm-hmm. So so this is actually quite liberating because it means that we have our things that we try that we cover and we and we've covered things that we IOT and uh, different stuff. But equally, it means that we can throw stuff out there and see how it goes with the data, because half of our traffic isn't repeat viewers but it's people who've come in because they're interested in a particular topic we've run so i guess that that that's 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 as editor that's you could say that's the day job but it's also a great way to be exposed to various technology and trends and things that are happening Mm -hmm. and and from that over the last few years that's brought in the advisory work that i do in terms of companies and messaging and how they communicate their story so so it's very complementary That's wonderful. So what I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by everything that you do and then also your journey. So mm-hmm. I want to start from the very beginning of what, what initially got you into journalism and, and that track? Yeah, look, I mean, it's an interesting one because um, I did American studies uh, majoring in history at college, uh, both Sussex in, in UK and Georgetown, DC. And so um, it was more, it was history and obviously history, you could say is a series of stories, some mm-hmm. told by the winners, but then uh, even when I did history in the eighties, they were starting to get away from Kings and Queens president's view of history. And Sussex has a great uh, mass observation archive where they found diaries and journals of maids. And then because I did American studies, um, we did a lot about 
slave culture and the way that there was resistance through songs and oral history. And mm-hmm. basically it shows you that there's, there's a variety of ways of telling stories. I mean, and you know, so you can contextualize that from 30 years ago to now, you, you know, in the U S you have somebody who, when they don't like the story calls it fake news right. but, and it's forcing journalists to, to, to be very data-based and fact-driven and check their sources. So, um, it's, I guess it's interesting and it evolves. Um, but, but that's not to say that I've done it for 30 years or whatever since graduating from college because I did American studies. And w- one of the appeals was that I had a year in the States, which is obviously the best way to learn about if you're doing American studies is to spend time there as well as academically wherever you're based in the world as we were in the UK. Um, but after that, uh, I had a master's lined up in international development studies. But before that, I wanted to actually have some real experience. So I then took a year in Central America um, doing humanitarian work and voluntary work and then TEFL. Uh, so the TEFL was to pay to, to bring the money in. And then we did some voluntary work with the Red Cross and stuff. Okay. Um, and from that, that, that led to maybe about eight to 10 years of TEFL uh, teaching English as a foreign language because back in the nineties, it was a great way to make a living. It was better paid than bar work. And it would mean <laughs> people went to Japan, people went to Korea, we went to Spain, we went to Mexico. Um, so it was a great means to an end. Now, equally, I didn't, there's Nick Hornby who wrote a trait, um, or oh, the one about Arsenal and then the one with the John Cusack movie. Um, oh yeah, with, High Fidelity. Yeah. High Fidelity, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so there are many ex-English teachers who realized they couldn't keep teaching English for ages, <laughs> but but it was a great way to hone their writing and their, a bit, their knowledge of language. Okay. So similarly, to condense that, uh, I then moved to Ireland and my master's, had been in environmental economics. So I wanted to do stuff in environmental education. But the 90s in Ireland, it was still not really a thing, but there was a lot, Ireland, Dublin had a lot of social problems. So there was a lot of money for community development. So basically they said, look, you want to do environmental education? Well, we don't really care, but if, but if you do it in community development in impoverished areas, we'll give you funding to do projects. Mm. So therefore we did environmental education, but it wasn't really the boxes they were ticking. They wanted it to be outreach and empowerment and, working with people who didn't finish school mm-hmm. so 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 it enabled me to continue my interest but we did it in these really rough areas um and then from that we got commissioned by the regeneration agency so the u2 song running to stand still talks about i see seven towers and i see no way out so these are the seven towers of valley moon which is by the airport and hmm. you know it's that brutal monumental architecture where you're in a tower block but there's no facilities and it was pretty grim and there's a movie into the west where the kids have a horse on the first floor and they leap over the thing and my offices were actually in that in that same block so you know it was a bit surreal but it meant that for 10 years we did environmental education and we advised and and obviously we were always trying to get our stories into the press and therefore we learned how to write stories to get the press to cover what you did Mm. and therefore that wasn't being a journalist but that was pitching to journalists which is Mm -hmm. a great way to learn how to get the media to cover your story so that would be like the second career phase and then when the recession <laughs> when the recession came in 2010 i realized my <coughs> my skills were very soft so um i retrained in software engineering and a whole load of it and data related hmm. i did like a, a bsc and an msc and a diploma because the government were looking to they didn't have enough in the it sector and they had people who trained in other areas and if you could pass the math test then you got in on an aptitude assessment rather than any background in coding so so, I mean, I was the worst coder in the class, but I did understand about communication and it was 
super useful to then move into tech journalism because there are a lot of journalists who write about tech but they haven't necessarily been a developer or a coder so therefore even being the worst coder in a master's class it still meant you understand what what these companies are trying to do mm-hmm. so i guess that was phase three and then that positioned me uh with irish tech news from about seven years ago to then work out what i like doing telling stories what sector is fascinating really smart people work in this area mm-hmm. and then you see a lot of startups who again have really smart coders but aren't necessarily good at communicating so you know there's space for all of us between coders who can code faster than we can write and those of us who say that's great but there's five other companies with a very similar project to yours and they're maybe getting more traction not because it's better but because they're communicating better mm. so there you go 30 years in five minutes <laughs> That's very impressive and succinct. Um, <laughs> thank you. So what I'm also fascinated by is at the same time you are you know, doing this trajectory in your writing career, you've also been you know, starting companies and also helping to promote other projects. What, what made you first want to start your own uh, venture and company? Yeah. Okay. So, so I guess one of the extreme ones was, uh, had a girlfriend, she was a fire juggler. We went to Spain. It was the summer we needed money. So she, she would do the fire juggling and I would go around and ask the audience in five languages for money. So, you know, and, and, and I'm saying that tongue in cheek, but I'm, yeah. I'm due to interview Steve Blank at the end of this week. And obviously he's a fantastic guy. He, pioneered the start the lean startup and the get out of the building and i mean there's nothing better i mean i hated doing it i don't like asking people for money who does you know particularly strangers you know god what a nightmare but but if the motivation is this will at the time you know feed us and give us somewhere to stay that day and similarly if it's your company um back to the previous question about smart coders who don't communicate well um I think I think communication is humans still buy from humans and humans still need to sell to humans. Mm-hmm. So the ability to communicate is really useful. So therefore, even as a juggler busking for money, it's very quick that you start to learn what's going to work. How do you do things? And, and very much to try and listen and, 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 and read an audience. So I guess, I mean, that that's maybe a trivial one. But from that, we did move to Ireland and moving to Ireland in the 90s was very, very liberating because most people were leaving Ireland. Mm-hmm. So most of the Irish, not most, well, many, you know, were going to the US, Australia, UK, because there was a recession. So coming to Ireland, people were like, why have you moved here? You know, now, inadvertently, it turned out it was the beginning of a boom. The late 90s through were actually a fantastic time. And the great thing about Ireland, and it could be Singapore, it could be Tel Aviv, it doesn't have to be Ireland specifically, mm-hmm. was if you had an idea, there was space to try it out. And there was some degree of support, there was some degree... And, and that's half of it. You never really know unless you, you try it. And if you can find a slightly benign environment that gives you the space to do that, you're going to learn fast. And therefore, subsequently, when I interview other people and when we review books, you are to some degree you know, cross-leveraging your own experience. Mm-hmm. But you put that together and, and I think it's, it's the best way to learn. It's the only way to learn. And, and hence, the, you know, the, the get out of the building mantra, you know, it's, it's the, on one hand, it's obvious, but it's very smart insight, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so what's what's interesting, particularly about your your story of you, let's say, busking in in Spain, is is the ability to to get past your own fears, um, because it is you know it it can be a scary thing to you know go to another country, mm-hmm. have to ask people for money, 
what what do you think how do you approach those times when you are fearful and how do you move past those and particularly you know at your early career i guess of, of busking to kind of and if that's evolved or changed now yeah so so I, okay so so an interesting thing about ireland is while the irish are great speakers mm -hmm. in pubs if you meet them many of them hate and fear public speaking okay and and they will come up with all sorts of reasons to get out of doing it and and the thing about this is this is illustrative because things are very rarely as bad as you think they might be but if you haven't done it then it makes it a lot bigger and in the 90s in ireland um with the environmental education and we were doing public art and we did public art and i did it with the women's refuge and i did it with teenagers in deprived areas in some ways this was the worst not not the women but the teenagers were the worst audience to deal with because they were the most difficult argumentative you know you were slightly wary of them because they were 17 year old boys you know and they were coming up with every reason to push back so so, so therefore if so if in theory you have fear about addressing a conference the thing is is if you can contextualize that of it can never be as difficult as bad as when I taught the teenagers age 14 to 16 who didn't even want to be in the class, you know, therefore, you know, like the thing about fear is, is fear is generally equated to unknown things. Uh, right now, for example, you know, like there are many people who are doing online shopping because they've now done it every week for the last two months. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. never did it before. And so the barrier to adoption is, have you done it before? Uh, do you know what to do what might go wrong so 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 fear plus unknown are usually you know deeply entwined and therefore if you can kind of contextualize things and and bring it back down to look at mike what's the worst that can happen how badly could this go you know i mean in the dreams you you show up and you forgot to put your clothes on you know so the reality <laughs> is, is you're never actually going to be speaking in naked in front of people and it's almost trying to dial it back from and I guess on the other hand, they say most performers, you know, uh, are always a bit nervous and maybe you need to be a bit nervous, but it's okay to be nervous and yet also hold that and go with it. Mm -hmm. And then because so many, most talks you do these days are recorded. So you get, now obviously it's excruciating to listen to yourself and play it back. But, but the first few I did, you know, you, my, my, my partner, and she was right. She said, you're saying, um, and you know, and like a lot. So maybe just try and breathe in maybe pause a bit and roll with it and 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 just dial down that nervousness and you know so there's a degree of <clears throat> you know no one's probably actually going to shout at you no one's going to throw things at you you know so it's trying to deconstruct the worst things that can happen and and most of the time they don't so mm -hmm. so look i mean it's it's normal to be scared it's normal to be fearful but i think really successful people uh are, are never not scared scared or fearful but they but they know it and they hold it but they still push things forward mm -hmm. so when you're approaching let's say a new speaking engagement or something like that and and you mentioned the deconstruction of, of fear do you like actually write down your fears or what does that process like for you now um again i i think several years of working with disruptive teenagers <laughs> uh meant that you know like because of this public speaking i mean you do a tedx talk people are happy to be there if you go to dubai to speak in a conference people have you know paid a lot of money to put you on a first class flight to get there mm -hmm. so 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 i mean like i guess in a year like i would analyze and you know like not every talk's perfect and sometimes you don't quite read the audience right or 
you know, like, so it's not that every, every time works perfectly and there's always things you can tweak, but I think if you're open to assessing what you did and, and, and being able to hear feedback, then, then you can stay ahead of the game and, and ideally be hitting 80 to 95% most of the time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I don't really have fears about that, but I think anybody who's taught kids or I, I, here's the thing, right? Even if you want to be in a, it's like work out where you want to go. And if you know that you want to be speaking at TEDx and conferences, dial it back and just speak to a very small group first. Cause if you can't even get on stage to speak to four people, then that's too big a jump. So I guess it's have yeah. measured goals. And I definitely, a couple of years before I did the TEDx, mm -hmm. I worked out, I can't, I, I guess I worked. So when I first, when when thing when this phase began i wanted to get invites to events to mm -hmm. cover it as the media then after about a year of that i was like i think i need to be talking now rather than listening because i'm not hearing from every speaker things that i don't know already and that i could add to so mm -hmm. then i knew that in another six to twelve months i wanted to do a tedx and i wanted to be the speaker and then i wanted to be a keynote speaker so i think it's that thing about having goals working out how to get to your goals and then being slightly dissatisfied when you get to them to work out what you do next, mm -hmm. you know? So, and, and again, also I played sport to a high level for a long time. And so we had a, we had a golden period where for two years we won 11, we won 11 finals out of 11, but you know that in 20 year career, it's never going to be like that. You're either on the way up or you're on the up and everyone wants to beat you or you're on the way down. And I think having that degree of, you know, um, yin and yang about things means that you can hold everything in context and then equally you come home and the kids don't care how well the talk went you know they want you to help with their maths homework which it's not always easy so mm -hmm. you know i think that helps and that that helps to dial the fear down to put it back into a proportion that's appropriate yeah it definitely does what uh, what sport were you professionally playing uh so it was ultimate frisbee and we, we were dreaming that it would be in the olympics and it was discussed that it might be so uh I played in the US and Costa Rica and Mexico. And then uh, I, I helped create the Irish national team, which obviously made, made it a bit easier to be the first captain. <laughs> it, was, it, was a fun, it was a fun ride. And, you know, the great thing about that was, is we had a lot of interaction with some of the best teams from California mm -hmm. who even came to Ireland. And again, therefore, you might be the best in Ireland. And then you bring over the Californians who have, who've won US nationals. So, so everything's relative. And if you can be open to playing with people who are so much better than you, then I think it's the, it's a growth mindset really, isn't it? And I just, mm -hmm. that's why I mentioned sport because I think it can bring it back into business. And, you know, some of the people I work with who do podcasts for us, the innovation show, uh, this guy, Aidan McCollin, he used to play for Leinster, which is the top Irish province on occasion. And therefore he had 12 years as a professional athlete. And I think those people are hungry to learn when they move into new areas. And, and again, that's a very healthy way to do things and then again ultimate frisbee too is quite interesting because it's self-refereeing so therefore you've got a kind of mm. honor code about it so so you know if you were to be playing solely to win but without the spirit of the game as it's called then you're mm. actually kind of in breach of the whole reason of playing mm. so i think that can be quite helpful too that do the best you can but but without doing it in an unethical way yeah yeah that's and then that's a fantastic philosophy about life as well uh, because there are so many other areas where that translates that to. What yeah, initially? I, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, after you. Oh, <laughs> I was gonna. No, no, no. Please continue your your thought. I'm, I'll lead us into another area in a second. No, no, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I want to hear about your what initially got you into the the blockchain space, and then kind of how you're looking at it now. 
yeah so um with blockchain i mean so 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 satoshi nakamoto and all of that i'd heard of for a few years prior to maybe 2015 2016 because we had a friend who'd moved to the caribbean and renamed his facebook account satoshi nakamoto <laughs> so so initially i was like what 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 is you know so 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 i knew about it in that way from a slightly random way and then he actually became uh, uh ruben godfrey he became quite active in advising ico subsequently so i guess he was ahead of the game there mm-hmm. um but to park that for a second um we were starting to do a lot of stories about blockchain as proof of concept of what it could do how it could be useful um how it could complement with the internet of things and uh, big data. So, so we were running stories for several years, long before we did anything in relation to crypto and that side of things. So, so it definitely was in the space and interested, but, but, but not in a prematurely uh, prophetic way. Like we didn't buy Bitcoin when it was at the time, you know, when it was like, you know, a dollar or $7 or $15. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were much more looking at what, what can blockchain do rather than Bitcoin. And, and I think, I think that's been good and that's been the right way to play it because obviously by writing about it, people began to ask me if they, if I'd be an advisor. And at first I was like, I don't really see how that would work because I can't, I wouldn't want to just shill one company because we have to analyze and write. And how do I know that your product's better than any others? You're approaching me cold. Mm-hmm. So, so I said no to quite a few. And then, I thought, well, if I was to say yes, how would I help and in what way would I help? And therefore, the advisory began as we spoke about messaging and communication and mm. articulating what the problem was they were solving. So it, it was gradual prior to autumn of 2017. And then autumn 2017 into 2018, it began to really kick off. And, and Ruben, who, who no longer was calling himself Satoshi Nakamoto, which was always ironic, like he never claimed to be one of the actual three or four guys who... Who, who was the pseudonym, but he said, look, uh, you're listed on ICO bench. I think it was, you're in the top 10 for advisors, but it turned out the reason he was doing that was because he was a place above me. So he wanted to go and look at the website to, to see him. <laughs> um, so it was a funny way in and, and, and like with all things with the page one of Google research, once, once we are both in the top 10, many, many other people asked us to work with them mm-hmm. because we were already the ones they were finding. And from that, you gradually went up and then when you're in the three, two and one, then everybody wants to work with you. And then you create structures to do that. And it became super interesting because it very much was like the internet 1.0 startup boom of the late nineties. Many people were trying stuff. Not all of it probably should have been using blockchain. And that was the big filtering. Were people jumping on the bandwagon or was this an idea that benefited from using blockchain technology? And and obviously things got very bubbly and, and came down the other side of that. But at the same time, I maintain good links and observe the ones that did build what they wanted to build and are going through all the normal startup periods of growth about commercialization and spinning it out and building the product. So in some ways, you know, give it another maybe half year, year or two. Uh, the ones that have smart blockchain based solutions are delivering it because it's a better solution than what came before. Now that's not to say that the technology itself is not evolving and there may be better solutions again down the road, but you're always having to fix what you can with the best technology you have to hand at the time. So it's not to say that what they built is definitive, but it may be the best solution at the moment. And, and I guess for me, the same insights and the same relevance in terms of startups that work 
are still applicable. And and again, like Steve Blank, I imagine, you know, like the book I'm reviewing, it's it's 17 years since he first published it, but there's still a lot of value in what he says, you know, because something's changed, but something stayed the same. Yeah. So of the of the projects that you advise in the past, are there are there any that you are still excited about, or, or have they kind of come and, and gone? Um, so no, so so for I guess uh, so Morpheus Network, we're looking to do seamless uh, transactions when you approach borders. So hmm. so be, so it was, the idea was to to streamline cross border movement of goods. Now, so on one hand. Uh, you know the situation we're in right now is really pushing things back but on the other hand we still have globalization and movement of products across the world so, so that hasn't stopped so therefore this solution still speeds up time relative to what it would be if you weren't using the solution so mm-hmm. they're still going well and then i was talking to another one um that's you know that two years later is still building the product and this is the thing like i mean while you may raise X amount of money in a very short period of time, and again, I worked for Ericsson for a while, yeah. uh, who obviously big multinational software development, amongst other things. It's very hard to build and ship things very quickly. And so many of them are still doing it. Um, and I guess the smart ones were the ones that with the money they raised, they didn't leave it all in Bitcoin or Ether. And they put it into a, a range of currencies, including you know, their own local fiat currency. Mm-hmm. And then that way you weren't killed when, when Ether, you know, I mean, Ether now is about $180, $200, yeah. whereas, you know, it was much higher before. So, you know, there's always a little bit of roller coaster about when, when did you move your assets into something more than just crypto? On the other hand though, like if you'd kept it in Bitcoin, you, you wouldn't be as crippled as some, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I guess what was happening was, was it was people were, throwing too much out there and looking for things that weren't really realistic and that damaged the confidence of of many of the tokens mm. and what it could have been worth so no there's I th- there's, the, the, there's quite a few but that they're just going through the normal time frame of a startup and, and while you could raise money in a day or a week or three week campaign it still might take you a year or two to to, to build the complete and market killer thing that you're trying to build mm-hmm. right so, so with that and and the the ups and downs of of the kind of the market itself, is that so? Is are you like watching Bitcoin and and Ether and the other currencies closely, or is that not so much of what you focus on? Um, it's a good question. And so, so you know, we know that you know, uh, back in August onwards, twenty seventeen, Bitcoin was going up a thousand a month and more, mm-hmm. hit twenty thousand by the winter, and fell in the fell after that. Uh, and then it fell, maybe the lowest it fell was 3000, but, but in some ways last year, and even again now, uh, in some ways, Bitcoin's actually become more stable than some other things. I mean, if you think about the oil went to a negative price, mm-hmm. you know, while, while, while Bitcoin had its fall, uh, the value of Bitcoin now is still higher than it ever was before it went on the run of 2017. Um, at the same time, uh, it's not something that, that I, I I watch or I need to watch daily because it's not really doing that much mm-hmm. that rapidly. And and I think too, that there are buy orders that if it falls below a certain price, uh, it will get scooped up. And then I get these crazy emails saying, you know, my client would like to buy 10,000 Bitcoin. You know, can you help us? It's like, no, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, and yet also the other problem with this one is, is that you ha- still have a few people that hold very large numbers of Bitcoin and, and therefore market manipulation, you know, I guess it's like Winston Churchill's comment about democracy being pretty terrible, but better than any other option. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, Bitcoin 
and the whole concept behind it does do a lot of things better. I mean, obviously, like we could be in a period of massive quantitative easing now. Now that the EU are printing money, now that the US is printing money, you know, to bail things out, that's kind of okay on one hand, but on the other hand, that is a deflationary thing to do. So therefore, with the Bitcoin halving, um, we may yet see the proof of concept for Bitcoin because Bitcoin isn't suddenly going to be metaphorically printed out to, mm -hmm. to bail people out. So, 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 so these governments' actions may shore up the fundamental value of Bitcoin. But, but I throw a final asterisk into this, though, is, is that um, Ether is very interesting. And in some ways, it, it was a great idea and it does a lot of things well. But, but you have a couple of problems, or one is the vagaries of the founder, Vitalik Buterin, will almost be briefing against it sometimes. And sometimes that's not, I think, conscious. It's more, he's a developer and he's maybe too heavily into the geek side of things and to look at the flaws that he doesn't always consider the impact on something that's now a tradable currency. Mm -hmm. And then very recently, I think in the last day or so, you know, Ether took a big jump from in the 200s down to 180. So, so I'm trying to work out what that is and sometimes it happens for logical reasons sometimes it happens for slightly whimsical reasons so you know these things are interesting they may have i mean obviously if you say they may work better than dollars euros and say zimbabwe and dollars or argentinian pesos because the trouble in some countries or venezuela is if you have hyperinflation on your money what you take out and what you get paid in one day it might be worth nothing the next day and in a situation like that the cryptocurrencies offer a better store of value because bitcoin isn't going to plunge like that it's not hasn't done that mm -hmm. anytime recently and certainly offers better value than your local currency so therefore i think we're in an interesting time that it does things better than what was done before but it's not necessarily going to be the gold standard now you could see that say with facebook facebook want libra and they want they want to be the one that gives you the stable coin mm -hmm. but but i think it will i think it will be somebody when when someone comes along who's not as toxic as facebook who offers a stable coin then that and it's easy to use and it doesn't require long public and private keys they're going to be the ones and and and, and while that's a hypothetical statement mm -hmm. if you look at what and financial and some of the chinese uh guys who've already moved strongly into mobile banking they are buying shares and buying up into klarna and transferwise so that i think they're very much looking for who will provide fast secure easy digital digital transfer of money and, and whoever it does, we're going to have a share in that because that's where it's going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I want to pivot very briefly um, on just just the fact that because you're the editor in chief at the Irish Tech News and then mm -hmm. the the Crypto Commonwealth, yeah. and in the environment we're in, where there are so many people who you know decry fake news, how as a journalist and as the editor in chief do you think about that, and how do you counteract some of those? Yeah. So uh, I guess it was interesting with, say, like the BBC, for example, who very soon after Trump came in, they realized they were going to have to really double down on fact checking and also the New York Times and Washington Post. Um, so you could see, I think, across the board, uh, media were realizing that uh, if you're going to just be called fake news, then you're going to have to work hard to demonstrate that that's simply uh, not valid you know, and, and to have more attribution, to check more carefully your stories. So, so that's, I'd say that's the general climate. Um, with Irish Tech News, uh, with our in-house writers, that would be an ethos that we communicate with them. And then also we're, we have people pitching stories to us all the time and guest posts and stuff like that. And 
uh, we will very much aim to do due diligence on the people that we work with and and very quickly you know we'll you know we, we will go and see are they on Twitter are they on LinkedIn uh, what, what is their digital footprint do they even have one and and while obviously that can be gamed too there are actually many that have no discernible digital footprint whatsoever so we're like uh, you're just not credible we don't believe that you are who you say you are or even your email is Juan at one two three dot nothing you know so (laughs) so so there are there are some things you can do very quickly to begin to assess who am i working with are are they legitimate and valid people or are they just a shadow front for Mm. for god knows what so so i I think it's something that on one hand we all need to do and then obviously within the media we need to do it much much more so Mm -hmm. and again so so uk brazil turkey us you have you have people in power at the moment who are very populist and who've got there by by short short circuiting the debate and the dialogue and just saying i don't like your question it's a nasty question whereas uh, uh you know and and i'm going to appeal to the lowest common denominator and and i think it's sh- that's one elections but i don't think it's a long-term sustainable strategy because actually to be data-led uh is a safer m- more honest better way of doing things so 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 so, th- so i mean we you know we discussed ethics a little bit and we definitely try to, to work out does this fit with the ethics of what we want to talk about is it constructed in a way that is based upon real evidence-based things that happen now okay. it's tricky you know you can't guarantee you'll always do it and you know and we get people writing to say oh that person you featured three years ago it turns out that they did x or y and and you're like well yes absolutely because you can only research to a certain point and and even you never know a hundred percent it's you know it's like trump's tax returns you know like people can stall and evade so so i guess yeah we definitely think about it it's something that is very important and i'd say we aim to do it as well as we can but but i don't think it's very hard to hit 100 percent on that right right okay so simon again i, I want to thank you for for joining me today um my last question is with everything that you've done and experience and you're seeing now what would you say has been the best advice that you have ever received yeah so it's it's a good question and i have been i was thinking about it and uh <laughs> like so i i guess so so long before ultimate frisbee I, d- I did judo and judo is judo is another sport that is is great maybe with martial arts in general, let's say, but judo was the one that I knew. I did it for about 15 years. And when you begin, you begin as a white belt mm-hmm. and then you work through the grades and, and you get, if you go to the grading and you get promoted, you go, yeah, it was yellow, orange, green, blue, brown, black. But beyond, so black is the one everyone's heard of. Mm-hmm. But then after black is white. If you, and, and, and it's, it's almost, it's a ceremonial. You have to be a seven man black or beyond. And, and there are very few in the world. Uh, but I kind of like the concept that that there's always someone better than you. And then when you reach the top to be the ultimate type in judo, you actually go to white, which is very clearly symbolically saying that, you know, there's, you know, it's like, like sport, you know, uh, no one wins all the time. You know, uh, if you, if you're at the, if you're at the peak, someone's going to come and knock you off. So I guess as a, as a sport that helps you to understand that you keep trying, you do your best, uh, but, but 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 try to be open and don't be arrogant because that way you'll stay open and keep learning and you're less likely to do something stupid now also if we're talking about human beings rather than sporting metaphors um i think i've been fortunate that 
I've had a lot of people who've been willing to give me time and point me in the direction of where I want to go next. So on one hand, I've mused on why that's happened. And I think it's obviously I've been fortunate and there are great people out there who want to share their time and expertise. But then as I've moved along in age and realized they also, I think, quite liked the fact that I was even interested in listening to them and learning from them. So you realize it's like an ongoing wheel that happens that if you if you can stop talking for long enough to listen to the things that people are trying to tell you, if you do, then people are willing to share more insights with you. And then equally, if you keep on that path, then other people are happy to help. And then, you know, paying it forwards or paying it back is when you try to give the same time and advice to other people. So, so I guess it's that one, either you list one person or, or you don't list, but you appreciate that, that you got to where you are because many people were helpful and that yet you were open to being helped. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Awesome. So Simon, again, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. I really appreciate it. If the listeners would like to uh, obviously follow you on online or read more of what you're writing and working on, where should they go to do that? Yeah. So, so it's pretty simple in that. So we have Irish tech news, which will come up. Uh, it's, it's, it's should be findable anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And then, so me, Simon Cocking is also, that's my Twitter handle and that's my LinkedIn so basically any article I publish has my email at the end and then between Twitter and LinkedIn, then you'll find me there as well. So that seems to work and uh, it's a great way to engage. So yeah, we're happy to hear from people and pitch your stories or tell us what they're up to. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I will put all of those in the show notes so people can click right through. Awesome. Thanks very much. It's been uh, great to talk to you. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Hour podcast. If you like this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to advanceyourart.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again and have a great day.